Well, guys, stretch, do what you got to do, uh, stand up, do some jumping jacks as we're getting ready to get into God's Word. Um, Luke chapter 15, if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. We um, crossed the threshold of yet another chapter in the Gospel of Luke. It's a moment to celebrate. Uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. We'll, at this rate, we'll be here for another five years or so. No, I've only been here, I think, uh, three and a half, almost, maybe almost four. Uh, well, you, you guys would be okay. Uh, but Luke 15, if there was ever a place to linger, my goodness, this, this would be one of them. Um, if there was ever a place to kind of slow down and go, hold on, what did God just say he's like and he's doing in our lives and for people? Do I really get that? Do I really believe that? It would be here. It's, it's wonderful. Let's, um, let's read. Verses 1 through 10, um, I'll pray and, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country. Go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he is found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. God, if I understand what you're saying here rightly, and you're saying that in this room right now, you're pursuing people. You're seeking to find what's been lost. To heal what's been broken. To repair what's been damaged. You're wanting to see sinners come to repentance and life and joy salvation in you. If I'm reading this text right, then we can know without a doubt In this room, the Good Shepherd is on the move. That our God doesn't sit back with arms crossed waiting for us to clean ourselves up and get back to Him. But instead, you roll up your sleeves and you put on your 
your sandals and you come running towards us. You're not just reactive with your grace, you're proactive. And God, so we pray that our hearts would be open to you now. And we pray that you would come and you would speak. And God, we pray uh, not just for those of us who are in this room, but for our kids in the back. I prayed with the guys earlier this morning, but we don't send our kids to the back so they can get out of our hair. We send them to their own rooms so that we can focus on them and bring the good news of Jesus to them in a way they understand. And so we pray you'd be pursuing them right now. And we pray even beyond the walls of this building here that you would be in the other churches in the area, the city and the world that are gathering today. You'd be pursuing your lost ones. You'd be bringing people back into the fold. God, I pray you'd do it in the time that we have here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Luke 15 um, basically, in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell th- uh, three parables, three separate parables. Now, you can tell by what I read, uh, we're just going to look at the first two this morning, and when I uh, come back and, um, next time, we will tackle the third one. But uh, I think the first two, I mean, they're all, they're all beloved, they're all amazing. Uh, it seems to me that the last one, the prodigal son, is perhaps even the most uh, popular, the most well-known. But this morning, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin in our sights. Um, now... If I'm honest with you, um, there are times where, you know, I preach typically through the Bible expositionally, which means uh, I don't always pick the text, you could say, that I'm going to be preaching on that uh, next week. And um, I trust that God has things uh, for us in his word, so it doesn't matter where we are. And I kind of like to give him that first word instead of just Nick and what do I feel the church needs? Okay, if God inspires Luke or inspires Paul or inspires Moses to write this for his people and then says, read it, I'm thinking that's where it is. So sometimes I will be preaching on a text, I'll see it's coming up and I'll I'll look and honestly, I'll get nervous because uh, maybe it's uh, complicated. Like there's one coming up in Luke 16. That I'm going, I don't know what to do with this yet. Hopefully the commentators and the Holy Spirit can help. Um, but, you know, there are texts that I'll, I'll be nervous because it's complicated. I don't understand it. Or perhaps it's, it's, it's a pretty hard-hitting word and I'm not sure how people are going to respond. Or, uh, you know, sometimes I just simply don't know what to do with it. And then there are other times where I come to a text and I'll tell you what, I'm nervous but for a completely different reason. I'm nervous because the text is so good, so beautiful, so wonderful, so amazing that I know whatever I can cobble together in a few sermons, it will never do that text justice. It will never unpack the glory that is there. And I feel that way about Luke 15. I've been excited to get here. And then when I finally got here, I'm like, oh, no. I don't have what it takes. I don't think I'm going to do this justice. Of course I know I don't have what it takes. I need his mercy. 
But my goodness, I hope by God's grace I might be able to be of service to you guys and bring a little bit out of what is so amazing in this chapter. Um, now, one of the things I was thinking about as I um, as I started to dive into Luke 15 and and study it a little bit, uh, I was wondering why. Why are these parables so well-known? Why are they so beloved? Why do people grab a hold of these? And even inside, outside the church, a lot of people know these parables of leaving the 99 and going for the one or, you know, searching for the lost coin or the prodigal son and the father just comes running to him and, you know, kills the fatty calf, wraps the robe around. A lot of us know these stories, whether we've been in the church or not, because they're just so, I mean, they just strike something uh, in us, right? There's something deep that they touch. And I, I started kind of go, I wonder why? Why Luke 15? Why these parables? Why so well known, so well loved? And I kind of alluded to what I started to discover. I, I think, it seems to me, the reason is that these parables, they kind of burrow underneath all the superficialities and the externalities of our lives, and they get at something in the deepest place. They touch something in the heart of human beings. There's something there. There's something that these things bring out that a, that a, that a human being desperately longs for. There are these deep-seated desires in our hearts, and these parables are touching on them. Now, to try to break this down for us, it seems to me that every human being is desperately longing for, you might say, uh, what we could flesh out into three things. One, to be valued. Two, to be pursued. And three, to be celebrated. To be valued, to be pursued, to be Celebrated. These are the sorts of things we're aiming for in everything that we do. As I started to kind of run this out and think about illustrations, I just realized that in all of our activity, however busy we are, however diverse all the stuff is that we're doing, largely, you could say underneath it all, what we are after is, is these three things. That I would be valued, that I would be pursued, that I would be celebrated. So the woman who spends hours in the gym or hours, um, you know, in the mall trying to find the perfect outfit or hours before the mirror working on her face or whatever it is, getting the makeup right. What's going on? What is that all about? Is it not this? I want a man to see, to notice me. To value me in such a way that then he would pursue me. And then when he, when he got that call back and, and, and we go out on that date and I'm interested to, to celebrate that I'm in his life, to rejoice in that. Isn't that what's going on there? Or the dude who's applying for work and, uh, he's gotta kinda get his portfolio ready and all this and it's this very intense and scary situation. Well, what's he hoping for? What's he doing here? He's, he's trying to put his best foot forward. Why? So that he'll be valued. He'll show why he will add value to this company. 
And then because of that, they will call him back. They will pursue him. And then when they get him on the team, man, they'll all rejoice at the good new hire that they just made. That's what he wants. That's why we, in many ways, we're going to school and doing these things, right? Or you might think of your child. I, I, I uh, had a illustration of this even just this last week where um, we, my daughters, they do um, gymnastics and they're, they're just learning. They're, they're just kind of getting started with it and it's fun. And they had this thing called show week this, this last week. And it's when all the parents kind of get to come in and watch the kids and they kind of perform, you know, or whatever. And, you know, without fail. Here's what you saw as every kid kind of did something on the beam or did something on the bars or, you know, a little bridge on the mat. They would get up after they were done and they would look and they would look for mommy and daddy, right? They would look for mommy and daddy. Like my daughters would look at me and I'd give them one of these and say, yeah, you know, they, what do they want? What are they longing for? What are my kids longing for? They're longing to know that they're valued. They're wanting to be pursued, meaning we want, they want us to show up. Like how sad is it for the kid that no parents showed up, right? We know that's sad. Like that's not how it should be. The kid's sad because they want to be pursued and then they want to be celebrated. Let's go out to ice cream. That was so good. Thumbs up. I'm proud of you. We long for these things. There's these kind of deep-seated desires in the human heart, longing for these sorts of things. And it's no wonder then that when we come to this text and discover a God who in a surprising display of love and grace is doing these very things with and for us, and it hits us somewhere deep, it resonates, it moves us, it instantly becomes a favorite passage. Because it touches on something we so desperately long for. Let me dive in and I'll show you what I mean here. I'm going to organize my thoughts under three headings. One, he values me though I've stolen from him. Two, he pursues me though I've run from him. And then three, he celebrates me though I've crucified him. Already you kind of see the amazing love and grace of God that he shows us in Jesus here. Now, before I can really look at uh, the parables themselves, we need to identify the context just briefly, because really those first two verses that set up uh, Jesus' parables, they kind of tell us why he spoke, who he's speaking to, those are actually uh, some of the critical keys to proper interpretation of these parables. All right, so what you need to do first with me is look at verses 1 through 2 of chapter 15 there, so we can kind of see this. This is what we see. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I need you to see two things here. Uh, we got two groups, and then we got two responses from those groups. Two groups and two different responses. The first group um, shows up there in verse 1, tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't have time to do this sort of thing every time we come to tax collector or all this, but you guys maybe are familiar. I'll, I'll give you briefly what that would mean. Uh, tax collectors were not popular. They're probably not popular today. They certainly were not popular there in Israel at the time because what a uh, tax collector would be and why they're um, obviously the, the Pharisees scribes 
scribes are not into these guys here and surprised Jesus is hanging out with them, uh, what they would do back in this day is they would basically uh, collaborate with Rome. So these are Jews who would collaborate with Rome, the nation that is actually occupying their land and oppressing them. They would actually sign up to take part in, collaborate with Rome so they could help with the administration of things, tax uh, their own uh, brothers and sisters. Um, So essentially, they are aiding the oppression of their people, aiding the oppressors. But they're doing more than just aiding it. They actually are adding to it as well. So the reason why these guys, these Jews, would sign up to then uh, do this to their own people is because they would actually have the ability to, to exact more taxes than Rome even needed and then just skim stuff off the top for themselves. So they not only aided in the oppression, they, they, were, they were actually adding to it, <laughs> if that makes sense. They were, they, were, they were sin upon sin, you could say, and here they are in this first group, along with the second people you see there um, classified as sinners. These are people whose lifestyle or vocation has them at odds with the law of God and hence has put them outside the bounds of the religious community. These are people who would have been excluded from the covenant community of God because of the way they live, because of the things they do. Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. That's group one. Group two shows up in verse two as the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the religious leaders in Israel at the time, the externally righteous, the ceremonially clean, the fastidiously kind of, uh, you know, upholders of the law. Um, we would think these would be the people who are the most in touch with what God is doing, uh, with who God is, with what his mission is, what his purpose is. We would think these are the guys, and yet, as we get to this, there are two responses of these two groups. We see that these guys have missed it, right? When it comes to the response, we see the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to hear him. Verse 1. They're all drawing near to hear him. And don't miss how Luke 14 ended. Jesus ends uh, Luke 14 saying, All who have have ears to hear, (laughs) let them hear. And then chapter 15 verse 1 begins, The tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear. These are the guys who have ears to hear and understand and want to follow Jesus. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and scribes who should be most in touch with God's will and ways are standing back grumbling. And we see their response in verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. What's his deal? So, the parables that Jesus goes on to share then, and this is what we need to know, are spoken in response to this grumbling. They're spoken in response to uh, this kind of what is Jesus doing with, 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 with uh, ragamuffins, with, with, with outcasts, with, with these sorts of folks. Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what's going on here by way of parable. That's what sets up these two parables. He's largely responding to this grumbling and he's largely speaking to these scribes and Pharisees trying to tell them what is happening. He's basically saying, I know you guys don't value these people. You think that they've, you know, they, they've abandoned the, the, the purposes of God. That they're now outside of it. That they're beyond hope. You don't value them. They, they're worthless. 
Get them out of my sight. I know that you don't want to pursue them. You're happy when they are away, when there's distance between you and them. And I know that you certainly would not celebrate if they were to be brought back in around the table. You would not rejoice to have them in fellowship with you. You'd be a little bit ashamed and turned off by it. But I'll tell you something. I value them. I'm pursuing them. I want to celebrate when we bring them in. I wish, scribes, Pharisees, people of God, so-called, you would join my father and I in this mission. That's where we are. That's what we're doing. So, verse 3, so he told them this parable, and uh, really he breaks that into three. So let's look at the first two parables then now. Um, and I'll start to start to unfold uh, some of those those headings. He values me, though I've stolen from him. Point number one. He values me, though I've stolen from him. Um, as we consider these two parables, the first thing we notice, I think, though it's perhaps presupposed, is the fact that God values us, you, me, sinners. Uh, he communicates this first, if you notice, by talking about the shepherd who actually notices, recognizes that the sheep is gone. So you've got a hundred here, you notice one is missing. And that's not okay with you. Recognizes that something is incomplete. That one is not here that should be here. This sheep matters to him. It's valuable to him. You are valuable to him. In the same way, the second parable comes at this idea, um, though this time with the image of a lost silver coin. This woman has ten silver coins. The Greek there is drachma. It's basically like a day's worth a day's wage. She had ten of these silver coins, and she loses one. And here's what I'd say. That's not okay with her. Like, oh, I've got nine. I mean, nine out of ten, that's pretty good. No big deal. I'm sure it will turn up. No, it's not okay with her that that one might not be here. And so, she, as we'll see, puts on a search party for this, right? This coin, because she values the coin, because God values you and me. That is the presupposition of all that we're reading here. He notices when you're gone, he misses you. He loves, he values you. The bottom line here, I think, Jesus is just saying this. These tax collectors and sinners, scribes and Pharisees, though they don't mean much to you, man, they mean so much to me. And so it's important for us to recognize that as well, that you and I are valuable to God. I, I, I think that we are all kind of haunted um, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I, th- I think we're all kind of haunted by this feeling that at the end of the day, our lives don't really matter all that much. That um, when it's all said and done and we are gone, no one's really going to remember or care. Life just kind of goes on and, and, and it, it, they'll just pave right on over my life. Right? Kind of haunted by this feeling that we're not worth anything. We don't. We're not valuable. 
Uh, and I think it's what leads us to do all, all sorts of silly things, even sinful things, to try to prove to ourselves and others that we're worth something. Um, I know I, I referenced this documentary a few weeks ago, but I've still been thinking about it. And um, there's another thing I wanted to bring out. Uh, I'd encourage you guys to watch it because it gives you window into human beings' heart and why we kind of do some of the things we do. But this is the, the documentary called Free Solo about that guy who free solo climbed, which basically means without any ropes or chain, basically an insane dude, free solo climbed El Capitan in Yosemite. Um, which is crazy. Uh, but there's this point, uh, while he's kind of being interviewed in things, where he kind of gives window into some of the motivation for this. Like, isn't that what we're wondering? Why are you doing this, man? What, what motivates a guy to go to these sort of crazy lengths and, and take these risks and do these sorts of things? What is that? Well, let me read this to you. Some of my mom's favorite sayings are, this is French, I think, and I would have no idea how to say it, but I'll give it my best shot. Uh, some of my mom's favorite sayings are, presque ne compte pas, or in other words, almost doesn't count, or good enough isn't. No matter how well I ever do at anything, it's not that good. The bottomless pit of self-loathing. I mean, that's definitely the motivation for some soloing. Look, I don't want to fall off and die, but there's a satisfaction to challenging yourself and doing something well. That feeling is heightened when you are for sure facing death. You can't make a mistake. If you're seeking perfection, free soloing is as close as you can get, and it does feel good to feel perfect for a brief moment. Did you catch that? You want to know what's in his mind? It's crazy. What his mom would say. Right? Almost doesn't count. Good enough isn't. You want to be valuable to me? You got to be perfect. Okay? Bottomless pit of self-loathing. How can I become perfect? Free solo climb is as close as I can get. Because if you make one single mistake, you fall to your death. If I get to the top of the mountain, I know I was perfect. I'm valuable. I'm worth something. Please. You see that? We go to these ridiculous lengths uh, to try to prove to ourselves and others that we are valuable. All the while, we have forgotten that we've always been valuable to God. We've always mattered to Him. He cares. Now, let me speak to some of you. Myself, I would put in this camp as well. I got nervous even talking about this idea that God values me and values you. You want to know why? Because I know what has happened in the church where we kind of turn theology and turn the Bible and, and, and a lot of churches do this where just make it so me-centered, right? Like where you come into church and all that you're told is, you know, that God loves you, he's amazed by you, he thinks you're all, and you wouldn't even know that God has glory because we're so focused on our own, right? And so... I wonder, you know, isn't this talk about God valuing me and things like that and valuing you, isn't that kind of me-centered? Isn't that kind of spinning off into that distortion? Well, I think a lot of us perhaps have seen that and then overreact. No, it's all God's glory. I'm dust. I'm a worm. I'm nothing. I'm, you know, I repent in dust and ashes. I'm on the ground. And yes, absolutely. And we'll see some of that. But it's really important. We understand 
God values us. Like you are precious to him. When you are that one and you're not there, he misses you. Now, just so you can see I'm not making this up. Jesus actually says as much all over the place. I'll just bring out three quick examples. Luke 12, 6 through 7. Are not five sparrows sold for, for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. You want to know what's behind some of your spinning off into control and anxiety and some of the sins that get involved in that? Like, I, I need to make this right and make sure I'm secure and get everything in place. You want to know what's behind that? You're not trusting that you mean anything to God. You don't get, he says, fear not, you are of more value to me than many sparrows. I know everything that happens to the sparrows. How much more will I be there for you? You need to know this or you'll spiral off. It's important. Luke 12, 22 to 24. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Same kind of argument. Don't worry, I've got you. Don't fight for your own like you're, you're an orphan. I've got you. You're valuable. How much more valuable are to be than anything else in creation? And I value it all because I made it. We'll get there. Matthew 12, 11 through 12. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He says, therefore, on the Sabbath, what better thing could I do than heal this brother's withered hand? It's what I came to do, because I value you. In fact, man, Jesus' whole ministry, viewed from one angle at least, uh, I think is an eloquent and ir- irrefutable testimony to how valuable you and I are to God. He doesn't have to do this. And yet, the Son leaves the glory He had with the Father before the world ever was to take on flesh, enter this fallen world, and come after us. Because it's not okay with him that you're not around the table. It's not okay with him that there's one missing from the fold. It's not okay with him that that coin ain't in his pocket. He wants you in. He values you. He loves you. He cherishes you. Now, I think the nub of the issue, when we kind of could potentially spin off into me-centered stuff, hopefully I've shown you God values you. That, I think, is irrefutable. The the nub of the issue, what makes it me-centered or not, is why does he value me? Why does he value you? So on the one hand, you might come off and say, I know why he values me, for goodness sake, look at me. I got this awesome frohawk, even though my hair is thinning, you guys, and it's tragic. <laughs> you know, or we just start to list off our good qualities. No wonder. It's what I can do for him, what I can give to him. Somehow God needs me. Somehow God is incomplete without me. That's why he wants me. That's why he values me. It makes sense. That's not the biblical story. 
when we look at the scriptures, what we see is, is, is that he actually kind of values us in spite of the deficit we bring to the table. That we've actually stolen from him. We've taken from him. Remember, we're talking about tax collectors and sinners. He's saying, I value them. These are people who've taken and stolen. The parable of the prodigal son. We'll see this so clearly. Give me the inheritance. I'm out. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Let's go. We, I, just, I just made a baby cry. That's, that, is, that just breaks my heart. It, and it should, I guess. We're talking about the prodigal son going away. But that's what we have done, guys. And I think that's why I, I, I say in the heading here, he values me though I've stolen from him. So this isn't he values me because I'm awesome. It's more like he values me because he's awesome. And even though I've stolen from him, he still loves me. And I think we could say at the end of the day, his valuing of us actually says more about the measure of his love than it does about the measure of my worth. But I still haven't answered the question, why? Why then does he value us? If we do just kind of take from him, if we have run off with his stuff, and we bring deficit and liability, not asset, not not surplus into this relationship, why? If it's biblical, why? Well, give me a few moments and I'll show you. If you had to sum it up, you could say it like this, because he's made us in his image. Because you and I are his children. We were created to be in his family. That every single person on this planet is a, in my opinion, even if they're not, if they're an unbeliever, they are a lost son or daughter of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the adoption that Paul talks about with its salvation. I'm not saying everyone's saved. Okay, I get it. People need to be adopted back in because they have forfeited that right, kind of like Esau. right? But by virtue of our creation and being created in his image, what God was doing was saying, man, you're in the family. You're my kid. Okay. again, let me show you this in case you're not clear, because I want you to see why God values you, why God values your neighbor, why God values everyone in the city and everyone in this world. No matter what they have taken from him due to him, no matter what their stance is on Jesus, how many idols they bow down to, he values them. Lost children of God. Genesis 1, 27. Here's what we read. I want to show you um, what, what, what being created in his image really means. So we need to remember Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, you say, good, I know that. Well, where are you going with this? Well, the next time this idea of being created in the image of something shows up in Genesis, it's in Genesis 5. Doesn't mean anything to you, but let me read it. Now we're talking about Genesis 5-3. We're talking about Adam. And this is what Moses writes. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Now, did you catch that? Genesis 1 says God created us in his own image. Genesis 5 says Adam had a son in his own image and he named him Seth. 
the language of image and being in the image of something, and this makes sense. My kids should be in my image. They should kind of look like me because they have my genes, right? It's familial language. It's father-son. It's, 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 it's parent-child language. It's you're in the family language. And we're talking about Adam here. I mean, this is why Luke 3.38, when, when he's giving his genealogy of Jesus, Luke ends the thing by saying that Adam is the son of God. That Adam is the son of God. All who are created in Adam, created to be children of God, in the family of God, in his image. So to be created in the image of God then means that you were created to be like a kid to him, to be part of the family. And what that means is that God doesn't value you for what you bring to the table. My kids don't bring anything to the table but a mess, okay? But I absolutely value them, not because of what they can do, not because of what they can give, but because of who they are to me. And we are valuable to God because of who he's created us to be. His children, his family. Give you one more, give you one more to try to make the case. This is why Paul would stand in the midst of the Areopagus there in Athens and declare in Acts 17, verse 29, that we are all God's offspring. In the Greek, it's genos, where we get our word genealogy. He says to these pagan, Gentile, unbelieving folks, you are God's children. What are you doing outside the family? In Jesus, you can get back in. That's why God values us. In spite of all that we take, in spite of what we have stolen in our sin, in spite of the deficit that we bring in, He values us because he created us to be in his family. He desires us to be there. When when the one sheep is gone, when the one coin is gone, when the kid is gone, get him back in. Get her back in. This is why, as we'll see, he pursues us. Point number two. He pursues me, though I've run from him. He pursues me, though I've run. So he values me, though I've stolen from him. Now he pursues me, though I've run from him. And if you're worried, these latter two will go quicker. I just wanted to lay the foundation for why you are valuable to him and what he wants in the end for you. But now we come to the, the, the place in the parables where I want to bring out this idea that he's pursuing us. And you see it again in each of these in turn. Um, and I would say, no doubt, as I prayed, he's in pursuit of, of, of you all, even in this room right now. Some of you, he's in hot pursuit. Things in your life, idols and stuff, are, are, they're falling apart. And you can tell he's going after your heart. You're going to want to let him have his way. He has nothing but good for you. But in the first parable, we see this in the way the shepherd responds when he realizes one of the sheep is missing. He, verse 4, leaves the 99 in the open country and goes after the one that is lost until he, is fi- until he finds it. He basically says, I'm going to scour the countryside. Hill or valley, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to find that sheep. He goes after it. Or in the second parable, parable, we read this, what woman having 
Ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So this woman is just saying, listen, whatever I have to do, turn over table, turn over chair. Heck, I'll even open up the, the, the cushion to the couch. If you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about. There are things living in there that I don't even, how did that get in there? I didn't even know. Oh, there's the toy that we lost. Oh, there's like yesterday's breakfast or whatever, right? I'll even get in there to find this coin. Seeking diligently until she finds it. Because it's valuable. She's in hot pursuit of it. Because you're valuable, God is going after you. He loves you. And he's moving towards you. And again, it's all a picture for us. Remember the context. Jesus is trying to tell these Pharisees and scribes what he's doing around the table with with, with tax collectors and sinners. And so we've got to remember... That these are the broken, these are the rebellious. (laughs) These are the people, not that have just kind of turned and come running to God. These are the people that have run from Him. That have been living lives, you know, at a distance. These are the people He's running after. I think that's why, again, I, I... title this point the way that I do. He pursues me though I've run from him. Because I I think we can, at least in these parables, again, it's brought out a little more clearly in the parable of the prodigal son. But in these, we might be prone to think, oh, I know why he's running after me. Because I'm cute. I'm a cute little cuddly sheep. Right? I mean, we were just at Happy Hollow yesterday. And, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go to the petting zoo and watching Levi with the goats and the sheep. It was hilarious. The guy's running and it was actually quite dangerous. Grabbing hold of their horns and stuff. Was, but, but you know, you want to go after him. You want to pursue him. Of course. We can kind of forget. Oh, Jesus is talking about tax collectors and sinners and God's pursuit of the wayward, the rebellious, the people that have run from him. Not the cute cuddly little sheep, not the shiny, valuable, you know, precious little coins, but sinners who bring that deficit, who've taken his stuff and run. That's who he's coming after. That's who he's pursuing. We also might mistakenly think, um, by the words of this parable, that somehow God has lost us. I mean, that's the language, right? Oh, he must be a kind of a haphazard shepherd. He misplaced the one, or she must be a sort of a haphazard lady, kind of that sort, the sort of lady that's always, you know, losing her keys because the coins were there and now they're not. Like as if God were irresponsible. But that's not the story, right? We are lost because we have left. That's what's going on here. But God pursues us anyways, and that's really the amazing reality of the gospel. If you think about it, for one thing, if a person um, takes from you or, 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 or and goes or hurts you or wanders away from you with all your stuff or whatever, certainly you don't value them anymore. You're as good as dead to me. But then on the second thing, certainly you don't pursue them to bring them blessing. You may pursue them, but it would be to get vengeance, right? 
It'd be to, it'd be to make them pay for what they've done. So it's crazy. Even though we have stolen from him, even though we've run from him with his stuff, he values us, he pursues us still, because his desire is to bless and actually even celebrate rejoice over us coming back in. It's crazy. That's what we see next. Um, Point number three here. He celebrates me, though I've crucified him. For... Both of these parables, it seems to me that the emphasis really is actually on this joy, this delight, this celebration that God is going to kind of have when he finds what's been lost. It's all been kind of rising to this. I want to show you that in uh, the first parable in particular. The second one is basically the same, but, but listen to this. And let's sit in this for a moment. And I, I wonder if you know this God. I wonder if you know this kind of pursuit and passion and love that he has for you. Verse 4 again, I just want to read it. When What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he picks it up and scolds it. No. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Did you hear that? I wonder if you've had a moment like this with the Lord. Where you sense his joy, though you know you don't deserve it. Though everything in you says you've got to pay him back, you've got to uh, make things right, you've got to wash yourself up before you show back up in the family room. He picks you up, puts you over his shoulders and rejoices. I don't know your story of salvation and how God got a hold of you. I know they're all different, but mine was somewhat dramatic like that. It felt like that. I mean, if I had to put an image on it, this is a perfect one. The father picked me up. I was on his shoulders. As I had been just wandering into all sorts of idolatries, all sorts of sin. He broke down those things like you read about Jose. He brought me out into the wilderness and there he started to woo me back. When he got a hold of me, when he turned me back towards himself, when my heart opened, when I leaned in to hear, like these tax collectors and sinners were finally with ears to hear. My goodness, burdens that I didn't even know I was carrying were lifted. And a joy that I didn't even know was possible, regardless of earthly circumstance, what I was experiencing. I was on his shoulders. I could hear him singing. You know what I mean? Even though I knew I don't deserve this. There's that text in Zephaniah 3.17. Hear it again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So many of us, so many of us live under the scowl of God. 
we live as if the sun hasn't died and risen. We live as if Jesus is still in the grave. And God is still making us pay. Brothers and sisters, the S-O-N and the S-U-N has risen, right? The light has broken in Christ. And the song of God is sent forth. And he is rejoicing over you. He's not naive. He knows what it's cost him. He knows your sin. He knows your sin yesterday. He knows where you're going to struggle tomorrow. But for all who are in Christ, he also knows it's been paid in full. And so he rejoices over you with loud singing. Now, it's amazing because that's really not all. What I just described there was that intimate moment between the sheep and the shepherd. But there's more, isn't there? It's crazy. There's more. It's actually this joy in the Father is so uh, full that he can't contain it. So he goes on and says, listen, I got to call in the neighbors. I got to call in the city. I got to call in my friends. I've got to throw a party. Because I found what was lost. It's incredible. The song that God is singing over you isn't just a solo. It's like a choral arrangement, if you will. All of heaven partakes. Now, the second parable says virtually the same thing, but I want to remember this with you. Keep coming back to the context. Jesus is talking about what he's doing around the table with tax collectors and sinners. He's talking about rejoicing in these sorts of people. People who have not only stolen from him, run from him, but they've in the process seriously wounded him. And as I've already been mentioning, ultimately, it's because of sinners like you and I that he will ultimately be crucified, killed. Again, the parable of the prodigal son, I think, is amazing. And we'll see this more in the weeks to come. But I kind of want to sneak some of it in here because these three parables really relate. Parable of the prodigal son, in case you're unfamiliar, again, the, the son says, listen, dad, I want your stuff, and I want it now. I want my inheritance, and I want it now. Now, one commentator, in fact, Chris Keener's brother, <laughs> uh, uh, a wonderful biblical scholar, New Testament background, things like that, says that in this day, and I suppose it's very similar to our day, um, you know, to ask for your inheritance in advance was unthinkable. Inheritance uh, comes upon the death of the parent, upon the father, right? That's when you're supposed to get the inheritance. But the prodigal son, this younger son, comes to him and says, I want my inheritance now. And Craig Keener says, listen, it's basically, it's as if the son were saying, Dad, I wish you were already dead. I wish you were already dead. Give me your stuff so I can go on and live my life. 
And you and I, brothers and sisters, have said the same sort of thing to God. That's what idolatry is. That's what sin is. It's, I like your stuff. I want this boy. I want this girl. I want this, you know, money. I want this thing. I want this, whatever. I want this stuff. Absolutely. Who doesn't have a laundry list of things they want? But is God anywhere on the list? No, I want this. I don't want you. You come with all these rules and all this stuff. It doesn't feel right. You're going to constrain me. I want my inheritance now. Without you. I wish you were dead. To which God responds. Okay. Kill me. Jesus says, Man, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be turned over. I'm gonna be given this is in Gethsemane, he says, I'm gonna be given into the hands of sinners. I'm gonna let them do what they've always wanted to do. Kill me. I'm gonna flip that around. I'm gonna save them. When the father puts His son, his beloved son on the cross, he's basically ripping his heart out for us. Do you understand that? He's showing the extent to which he'll go to pursue the lost. He's paying the cost of our ransom. He's incurring the debt that we owe. He's taking on the penalty for our sin. That's what God, Jesus, they're doing in that moment. He's making a way for lost sons and daughters to come back into the fold because he's not just a father, he's also judge. And he brings the mallet down on his son there at Calvary. The only one who lived right, the only one who didn't steal and run off. He did it so you and I could come back in. So he could rejoice over the very people who did it to him. Now there's one thing, if you notice, required of us, and this is where we'll end. There's one thing required of us in these parables. It's how the parables themselves end, and I want you to see it. But it's this idea of repentance. It's this idea of repentance. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there is this idea, brothers and sisters, one thing that God is saying needs to take place in our hearts for this whole exchange to finally work out. We've got to want to be back in. I mean, he's made it all possible. He's shown us that the deepest longings of our heart to be valued, to be pursued, to be rejoiced and celebrated, all this is, 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 is put out on the table because of what Jesus has done. And he's saying, come and enjoy. You just got to turn from that and come home. And it's yours. This is why the Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. We see it. What kind of a God is this? Who does this? Nobody but our God. And we come.
I think um, sometimes repentance, this idea, often is misunderstood. Um, Sometimes we think of it only as this kind of somber, backlashing sort of thing. It's sitting in the dirt and feeling bad about yourself. Okay? Um, Sometimes we think of repentance from more of like a legalistic bent. Like um, it's turning from this set of bad actions and pledging to to do this set of good ones. Mm, I'm going to repent. That's what I'm going to do. But... The biblical understanding of repentance, and especially as it's brought out in the context of these parables here, is so much richer. It's so much richer. Does it involve sorrow over your sin and the way that you have grieved your father? Yes. So there will be tears. But here's the crazy thing. Those tears will not just be tears of sorrow. They will also be tears of joy. Because you, genuine repentance is not just a turning from something and sitting in the dark. It's turning from this in sorrow over sin to the Father. The fullness of all that He has provided for you in Jesus. So while you feel grieved at the depths of your sin and the way you've wounded the Father, you are at the same time strangely, overjoyed at the extent to which the Father would go to get you back in and the joy that he has over your return. So the Father is waiting to rejoice over you in Jesus. The question I have is, what are you waiting for? Let's come back to him this morning together. God, thank you for our time in scripture, the way you take us on a journey together and show us your heart. We are amazed. We are amazed that though we have stolen, though we have run, though we have even crucified you, you've turned it all for blessing. You still desire to have us around your table. Thank you, Jesus, for incurring the debt, for taking the penalty, for paying the cost. The only true son stayed in the, in the family, allowing himself to be disinherited, exiled for us. We're not worthy. And yet here we are because of you. Amen.